Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Today, I speak with Isaac Childress, the creator of Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven is the number one rated game on BoardGameGeek. And Frosthaven, the recently released expansion on Kickstarter, became the highest funded game on Kickstarter ever. Now, I recorded this podcast with Isaac before launching my own Kickstarter for Ascension Tactics, which, as of the recording of this intro, is currently live. You can check it out on Kickstarter. It's over 200% of its funding goal. It was funded in three hours. It's a huge success and very exciting, so please go check it out. But it is dwarfed by the success of what Isaac was able to accomplish. And I hadn't really had a chance to speak with Isaac before this interview, but it was I couldn't believe what I learned from this. Whereas the process of creating a Kickstarter is an incredible amount of work. The process of creating a game is an incredible amount of work. The process of creating a company, doing graphics, doing art, all the things that go into making a game is an incredible amount of work. And I spend most of my time when I'm teaching about design, explaining that you shouldn't really be trying to do all of that by yourself. Well, Isaac breaks all of those rules. He did so much of this work by himself, even while he was going to grad school. He is an incredible lesson in perseverance, in hard work, in how you can break the mold, and in how even when you see these universal principles that are everywhere, and and Isaac does use several universal principles that you can take directly, but he breaks so many of the rules. And so I was really glad to be able to have him on here to be able to show how you can have these kinds of runaway successes how you can go against the mold, how you can really make things to be a huge success. And I was able to apply several of those lessons to my own Kickstarter, which has obviously been working really well. And I've been able to apply those lessons to my own psyche. Anytime I think that I'm working too hard or I have too much on my plate, I think about what Isaac was able to accomplish and it kind of meddles me out a little bit. So I think I can kill, still do more. So it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed seeing the behind the scenes process of one of the most successful games in, in history, in the history of all tabletop games. So it's amazing. I learned a lot. I had a great time in this interview. I'm sure you'll learn a lot as well. So without further ado, here is Isaac Childress. Hello and welcome. I am here with Isaac Childress. Isaac, it's great to get to talk with you. Hello. Uh, Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, so, you know, I've been following you for a while. We haven't actually met or even had any conversations before now, which is, uh, you know, actually pretty rare with a lot of my guests. So uh, I'm going to be learning a lot about you along uh, with our guests. Uh, And uh, some of my team, I mean, most people know you, uh, you know, as creator of Gloomhaven and and Frosthaven and uh, members of my team are just completely obsessed when I told them I was talking with you. Um, They were completely (laughs) fanboying out. So so I know they're super jealous right now. Uh, And... uh, I really, you know, I really want to kind of understand because it, it, from my perspective, it, you know, you kind of came very quickly into the into the limelight and had a huge, huge success that that has kind of dwarfed most other things in in the category and even sort of formed its own category. So I'd love to to hear, you know, just kind of start with the origin story. You know, what what got you into games and and kind of how did you get started in on this road? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been like a avid video gamer, right? Um, mostly like RPGs and stuff like that, like very like board gamey type video games, right? Where you they're turn based, you don't have to like 
think on your feet too much. You can just sit back and make a plan and, and things like that. So we're we um, talking like Bard's Tale and like, uh, you know, Knight of the, Knights of the Old Republic. What's What are your some of your favorites? Uh, yeah, yeah. Knights of the Old Republic was good. Um, I mean, yeah, so I, I'm 38 years old, so I kind of grew up with a Nintendo and then a Genesis. So lots of like Dragon Warrior, Final Fantasy, Great. Fantasy Star, that sort of stuff. Awesome. Yeah, we're we're about the same age, so I've uh, same same fun backgrounds. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I played um, I played some board games as a as a kid, but mostly like Monopoly and stuff like that, where you're just rolling dice and moving moving around a board. Um, but um, I guess I got a little bit into like um, Axis and Allies in uh, in high school. Uh, along with Dungeons and, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons, I started playing in high school as well. Uh, but it wasn't really until like college, and particularly like um, my my grad school, that I, I really started getting into like hobby board games. Um, a, a roommate of mine discovered Board Game Geek, um, <clears throat> and at the time, I think like Puerto Rico was number one on there. So we we bought that. We're like, oh, let's try this out. This looks cool, and then just proceeded to like play it over and over and over, and then buy like you know the rest of the top 10 on that list and just uh you know just kind of spiraled out of control from there yep that's a familiar story i think <laughs> it's I, I, if i were going to count i think it's like somewhere near 100 percent of the game designers uh that i speak with have had dun- either the dungeons and dragons or magic the gathering as their like main like inspiration of like kind of getting deep dive into games and starting to think about about game design but uh your yeah. story resonates a lot in that of course now you you know the the sort of fantasy role play element of dungeons and dragons and the crunchy euro game aspect of the top of board game geek uh, yeah. obviously you know those those inspirations obviously come through so all right so you've started you're in college now you're 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 obsessed with the top euro games you've been a D player for a little bit what what happens next uh yeah so then um i what what really kicked it off um, after that was I discovered like a weekly game group um, that met like in the Purdue Union every Wednesday. Um, and and those guys were like, you know, way deeper into the hobby than I was. Um, and, you know, they had huge collections of games where, you know, I had like maybe five to ten or something, you know, whatever I found on BoardGameGeek. Um, and so... And up to that point, like I was only able to get maybe get people together to play games like once a month or something. Um, so now I was like playing games every week and I was playing like a different game every week. Um, and yeah, for whatever reason, that just kind of started like sparking this creativity uh, within me. Um, you know, like previously I'd, um, you know, DMs of uh, D&D campaigns and stuff like that. So like, yeah, I've always had like this this creativity to you know create stuff and and I don't know that that sounded dumb, but anyway, anyway, so like <laughs> creativity uh, to create stuff. Hey, I like. That. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so like it, that like playing all these different games started making me think about games more, uh, and so then like my creativity turned towards creating games rather than like D and D campaigns, I guess, and so that's that's where I got started uh, making games. So this is still in college uh, that you're doing this. You have your your weekly play group. You're trying out new games every week. Did you did you bring like a prototype to the table one week, or were you just kind of <laughs> working on stuff in your room, or what? Uh, yeah, I tried that. 
uh, didn't go so well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this was in, in grad school. So this was actually like um, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, and yeah, I, I created like a prototype of my first game. Um, I was really excited about it. You know, like I'd spent like all week, like making this prototype and, you know, designing this, all these systems. Um, and I, I bring it to the board game group. So I'm like, oh yeah, these guys want to try it out. And, and, um, you know, I just specifically remember like one guy, like, I'm like, Hey, do you want to play this? And he's just like, you know, we, we come here to, to play finished games <laughs> or something like that. Yikes. Uh, and like, yeah, just no one was interested and it was very disheartening. Um, and so, but you know, I mean, in some sense that was accurate. Like, you know, I was going to a game group to, to play games. And, you know, if I wanted to like do play testing, that is like a, a separate thing that I needed to like organize myself. You know, I, I could use the same people in that group, but it needed to be like a separate thing, not necessarily like something that something to do, like when they were planning on, you know, playing something that was guaranteed to be good. Yeah. You need to prepare, you need to prepare your play test group is a lesson you learned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so is that, is that what you did next? You, you rallied a group together to play test or. Yeah. I found a couple of people just kind of like, you know, creating message or message threads, like in that, in that community, it was, it was on a uh, meetup.com. So I like created some threads uh, through meetup.com. Like, Hey, you know, if people want to get together on a Saturday or something, yeah, I'd love some help play testing. And, the response wasn't great, but there were like one or two people who, um, you know, really kind of got into it and, and really helped me out in a big way to like, you know, start playing those games and, and, and refining them more. Yeah, no. And I, and I, and, and again, this is another thing I hear echoed a lot and, and especially for people who are not, you know, don't have built-in groups to start places like meetup are fantastic, you know, finding local, yeah. game, you know, local gaming groups, starting a local gaming group, being able to get that, 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 you know, playtest group together because at the end of the day you just don't know you know you can't design without a playtest group and getting feedback iteration loops in uh so you sort of took the initiative yeah, and did sure. this while you're still in grad school and then and how did uh, how did things go from there they loved it they loved your design right away right uh no actually the game was like way too long <laughs> yeah <laughs> was the main thing um but yeah also there were other problems um yeah but you know you just you keep working at it um you know you just yeah you keep iterating and hopefully, you know, the, the people are, are good enough, good enough friends with you to, to keep <laughs> working on it with you or keep playing the game. There's at least something interesting there to keep them coming back to, to see what's changed and what's gotten better. Can, um, yeah. Can I ask, uh, you know, cause this is the other thing, right? So the, 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 the specific tactics of how to do this are, are not actually that complicated, right? You know, do you want to try, you know, create something, get a playtest group, get feedback cycle, make it better, learn from that, do it again. But the emotional part is always a big challenge, right? So you ran into this situation, you're, you're in, you're still in, in grad school, you have tons of other responsibilities, you're, you play, you create your prototype, it goes, the testing goes terribly the first time. And I, I was kind of joking before, because it always goes terribly the first yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you're able, but, and so a lot of people, they hit that wall, and they stop. And instead, yeah. you said, okay, I'm going to take this as feedback, and I'm going to iterate, and I'm going to bring it back and try again. What do you think kind of gave you the strength to do that? Or how do you, you know, advise people who hit that, you know, that wall on how to kind of move to the next step? Yeah, I mean, I think it was two things. But yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. It's like, um, there's definitely like that emotional wall 
where for me, it was just like, you know, nobody is interested in this, you know, like nobody wants to play this with me. I mean, there were like a couple people, but it was like, I thought there'd be more, I thought there'd be more interest in this. And, um, and yeah, like it needs a lot of work and, you know, it's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think one, one thing, um, was just like, like, I, I feel like I had a, a good idea, you know, or I felt like I had a good idea. Like it was something that was worth pursuing. Like, even if it was too long and there were other things that needed to be, you know, fixed or, or changed. Like, I, I felt like the core idea was, was really interesting to me and I wanted to just, um, you know, see it keep going. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, tenacious in, in that regard. Like I, I love a good challenge, right? So if something is like difficult or more difficult than I expected to, like that, that never makes me stop. It just kind of makes me want to go more. Great. Um, and then, um, and I did have one friend who was, who was very encouraging, um, who kind of like stuck, stuck it out with me and like came to like almost all my play tests. And, you know, when I was feeling down about it, um, you know, he was always there to like, you know, encourage me. And, and I think that really helped as well. That's great. Yeah. So I think those are, those are three, like just super powerful principles just to underscore what you said, right? One is, you know, find something that's inspiring to you, find something that you're excited about, whether that's the the story or a specific mechanic or something that you personally are passionate enough about to kind of push you through the tough times. Uh, the second was sort of, you know, cultivating a, a love of challenge and a love of difficulty, right? Looking at it as a puzzle to solve and a, yeah. and a thing to overcome rather than a, than a, you know, slap in the face or, or whatever, when you, when, when you hit a wall. And then the third thing it actually is, is maybe even more important than the other two, which is, you know, to find that, that support network, right? Having somebody that believes in you, even just one person that believes in you and is there and standing behind you yeah. can make all the difference. You know, if, if a ton of people all give you negative feedback, but you've got somebody that's there to help you, man, that makes life so much easier and a lot more fun, frankly. Uh, and so I think that's just a, that, that, that's not a message I think we hear often enough. So I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. Those, all those things were definitely, definitely helpful. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you're, so you're now you're iterating, you got a playtest group. It starts, it's too long. There's all these problems. You're slowly getting things better. This is all happening again, still through the grad school period. What, what, at what point do you, you know, you move forward to the, yeah, I think this is a thing. I think I want to make this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was I was in it from the long haul for, from the beginning. Like I was, you know, sort of made the decision that I was going to like make this game and, and actually like try and get it published. And again, I mean, that was just because I because I love to challenge myself. Right. So it's just like, well, I mean, let, let, if we're, if we're going to do this, like, let's do it. Let's do it full force. Um, so yeah, from the beginning, it was, it was all about just you know, iterating on this design and, um, until I felt like it was ready to, to go to Kickstarter actually, like that was kind of my idea or my plan from the beginning as well was to like self-publish it. Cause that seemed like, I don't know, like the bigger challenge, I guess, <laughs> like, yeah, see if, I can, see if I can do everything. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. I, and that's something I absolutely want to be digging in, uh, to with you because, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm sort of also a kind of CEO game designer. I know what it takes on all different sides. And I always advise new designers, like, don't do this yet. <laughs> like, yeah. start, start by <laughs> publishing and working with other people, get hired by somebody. So license, you know, yeah, learn, learn, license the game. learn from other people and, and take less risk and take less work on. So you can focus on your craft first and you, you know, you just went full on charge. Let's go. Uh, and I, I just, I find that sort of fascinating. And, and, and again, all of this is in parallel to your, to your getting your PhD as a physicist. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean that that definitely took a took a toll on uh on my my graduate career. Um, <laughs> probably like took maybe a year or two longer to to finish that PhD than than I probably should have. Well, you did better than I. I was in law school when I uh, started going down this road, and I just quit law school to become a game designer. <laughs> so you, at least you got you at least you got the certificate. Yeah, yeah, I got the piece of paper. <laughs> Look at but you. I, <laughs> I've never used, but it's still it's still nice to have. Yeah, yeah I, I had a friend's you know tell me at one point or you know just give me some advice. You know, he's just like, you know, just just make sure you graduate. Like, you know, make sure you have a, a backup plan, essentially. Sure. Right. Like, sure. like, don't just quit everything to try and do this. Don't light the boats on fire. You, you can. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Well, so, so, all right. So you're doing, you're doing it all. So at what point did you start investigating in the either or start moving down either the production side or the Kickstarter side or like, you know, you, you, I understand the process as you're working on the game. When do you start either, either other path and, and how does that look? I would say the, like another one of my personality traits that might not be so great, but I think is at least partially responsible for, you know, things like Gloomhaven is I like my, my blind ambition, I guess you would call it right. Where it's just not, not like ambition in the sense of like, I want to take over the world, but just like, I I think that I can do more than I actually can. Right. And so it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll put that on Kickstarter. It'll be fine. Uh, you know, and then, um, you know, a year down the road, like after you design the game and, you know, you start doing research on like what all this is going to take and you, and you just realize like, oh, wow, this is like so much more work than I anticipated. Um, but, you know, at that point, like I'd made the decision. So it's like, OK, well, I'll just I got to do the work. Yeah, um, this, but, is, this, is, this is, I just, I want to just pause because I think this is another one of those messages where like ignorance is a strength in many ways <laughs> uh, because I had the same things right? when I was like starting my company, I really didn't know what it was going to take. When I started making miniatures games, I really didn't know what it was going to take. When I started making yeah. digital games, I didn't know what it was going to take. And if I had known at the beginning what I knew at the end, I may never have started, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I didn't know. I was just taking step by step by step. And once I was in it, I wasn't going to quit. Uh, so I think you ended up, uh, you know, <laughs> benefiting from that that trait uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, so you know, I just started doing a lot of research on the internet, um, you know, about what it, what it takes to get something on Kickstarter. And that's when I found, uh, you know, Jamie Stegmaier's blog, um, you know, which was very helpful. Um sort of you know enumerating everything all all the steps that you need to take to you know to be successful at this process uh and that's really when it started to like sink in like oh okay yeah this is this is like 10 times the work that i thought it would be um but but you know i I basically just like went through his list did did all the steps um and you know it took me you know maybe like six months longer um launched the project like six months later than I expected to, but, you know, especially cause like, you know, initially like I thought I could do all the graphic design myself, you know, I'm like, I'm not a graphic designer at all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, how hard could it be? Right. I just, you know, throw some things together. It'll be fine. So um, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my PhD as a physicist. I'm going to finish <laughs> making this game. I'm going to get the marketing and get it launched on Kickstarter and I'm going to learn how to do graphic design. No problem. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I am impressed. This is but yeah, that, that's one of his lessons. It's like, you need a graphic designer, like all, all caps, all bold. <laughs> and, and that was, yeah, definitely the right way to go is, was finding a graphic designer. And then of course, once you, 
get someone who's a professional to, to do it, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that looks that looks so much better. Okay, yeah, I definitely needed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, great. So you found a graphic designer. How did you find the graphic designer, by the way? Um, he was actually, he worked with my wife. Huh. Um, so he was like the graphic designer for the like agriculture department at Purdue where, um, where my wife was working. Great. Um, so I just, yeah, connected with him through that. He was, uh, yeah, the first graphic designer I used. Uh, and then actually like during that project, he kind of wasn't able, like during the Kickstarter project, he wasn't really able to keep up with it and like keep up with like changes that I wanted to make. Um, and it came, it became kind of evidence that like I needed additional help. And so someone else, uh, Josh McDowell, who I still work with now, um, just like contacted me out of the blue, like during the Kickstarter, um, I was like, Hey, do you need help? Um, yeah, I'm a graphic designer. I'd love to like get into board games and, and do more of this. He, he actually like lives, um, in the city where I live too. Um, and so he I ended up connecting with him and, and then he has done the graphic design for, for all, all, all my games. That's awesome. And, and I, and I, and then I just sort of, again, to pull sort of universal principles out of this, right. The, you know, find people in your network that you can work with and, and, you know, whatever, yeah. ask around and friends of friends or family. Right. And then once you start, you know, putting stuff out there, it's amazing. The other resources and people that will start to become available. And as you grow, you can kind of get more, you know, more professional, more people involved. I, you know, I often tell the story for, ascension you know the art for ascension was done by the guy who lived down the hall from me after i graduated college like i loved his art and 10 years later i was like hey man you want to you want to make a game with me you know because i didn't have the money to pay for a normal artist and do all the things but i was able to yeah. use his art style as part of the inspiration and that's what allowed me to be able to make the game and you know in a way that i couldn't otherwise and then of course eventually we you know got more artists and studios to work with etc but but i think people get overwhelmed a lot of times up front oh i can't afford a graphic designer i can't i don't know any of these people but but you can kind of start start small start with who you know and then expand from there and, and there's plenty of ways to make it work yeah so so anyway okay so you've got a graphic designer you've got a thing so this is uh, just by just for people that don't know so this is forge war right this is your first kickstarter project yes yeah okay. do you mind telling people a little bit because i know everybody knows you for gloomhaven and frosthaven now but maybe, sure. maybe you don't know forge war as much you want to give a brief like synopsis of what what forge war is about uh yeah so forge war is pretty much like a pure euro game um with a, a fantasy theme uh, essentially you're like an adventuring guild um and you're sort of responsible for like taking care of like the quests that the king has uh and so there's kind of like three parts to the game there's there's one part where you sort of work in a, in a mine to like mine resources uh which you then um will then go to the market to buy like weapon designs and then you'll use those weapon designs in combination with the, the materials that you've mined to make weapons uh and then you'll give those weapons to you know your cadre of adventurers who will go on these quests and complete the quests to get resources and sort of you know cycle through that that loop of of collecting resources and yeah turning them into points essentially cool and so, okay, so you've been, you said it took about six months longer than you expected. How long did it take from, let's start with kind of initial start working on the game to, and then also from when you first started, like, you know, seriously working towards the Kickstarter? Uh, how long did it take to get to launch? Uh, yeah, that's hard to say. I don't remember exactly like when I started working on the game. Um, Ballpark's fine. 
Yeah. I mean, it was definitely probably somewhere in 2013. So it was probably like a year to like a year and a half, I want to say. From initial from initial concept all the way to Kickstarter launch. Yeah, the Kickstarter launch. Yeah. The yeah. Kickstarter launch was like in April of 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So then, uh, so then uh, what, so you, you, you know, you basically, you're doing everything that I tell people not to do. So I, I love yeah. to piece all this <laughs> apart and, uh, and, you know, I, it's great. Cause I, you know, I love these other stories and gives, you know, the routes, there are lots of routes to success and even, you know, overwhelming levels of success. So how did you, you know, you didn't have much of a community in the gaming world as I understand it. How did you plan to market it? How did you get tracked backers? What was the, what, what, what worked well so you, for you to be able to pull this off? Um, yeah, so I, I attribute the success of that first Kickstarter almost like 100% to, to Richard Ham. Um, Rotter runs through you know, the YouTube mm-hmm. channel. I mean, at, at that time, especially, he was like the, the guy that you wanted to like get your game in front of um, if you wanted like success on Kickstarter. He was like, um, you know, he was the the main force uh you know the main media force in, in the kickstarter community at the time um and so yeah i mean i just kind of or no what what happened was i i put my game on board game geek you know just created a page on board game geek um and you know started putting information in there um sort of in preparation for the kickstarter and he just like on his own like he just goes through like all the new entries on board game geek and just like sees you know what's interesting to him and so he put it on like his his list of like i want to try this game um and so i saw that he had done that uh and so i just contacted him out of the blue on board game geek i'm like hey do you want me to send you a review copy uh and so he agreed and i sent him a copy um and then you know next thing i know like it's um it was like the night before the kickstarter launched and he sends me like his his review video, you know, playthrough and review video for for the Kickstarter, and he's just like raving like a madman about like how much he loves this game, how it's like his favorite game of the year, um, and everything about it is like so amazing. And it just like I, I distinctly remember that moment. It was like one of the best moments of my life. It's like oh my god, like this thing that I worked so hard on like is gonna succeed. Oh, that's um, amazing. And just based solely on him, so like yeah, he he so. You know, we launched Kickstarter. He he launched. He posted his review, and it was just like, it was just gangbusters. After that, it was crazy. Yeah, that's great. So, okay, so as far as you know, that's some of that's certainly fortunate. He discovered you, but you know, you posted your stuff on Board Game Geek. You kind of put it out there as soon as you saw that he was interested. You followed up uh, to make sure. And I think in general nowadays, that influencer reviewer kind of model is not obviously it's not just rado anymore there's there's dozens at the very least of very high-end reviewers out there uh and that i think is something that's you know maybe we'll talk more about as we move to your to your next project because i think that becomes a huge part of the the model for everybody now yeah yeah like the takeaway from that of that for me right is like you, you need an audience right i mean no matter how great your game is like no matter how great your kickstarter page is like you need people to actually go there and look at it and so like you can build your own audience which takes like a lot of time uh, and you know just a lot of effort or you can essentially like steal somebody else's audience or just borrow somebody else's audience yeah right? leverage it's <laughs> a nice uh, nice term <laughs> leverage someone else's audience yeah. yeah so if you if you get it in the hands of the right reviewer who you know is is speaking to to the audience that will appreciate what you're doing um then then yeah then 
that's that's going to be a, a yeah. And I think I think the way you can kind of set, I think the way you can kind of set the odds in your favor, right, is you want to be one paying attention to a lot of the reviewers that are out there. Find the ones that are you know clearly learn what they like. Learn what the ones that are going to like the kind of game that you're making. Yeah. Be where they are, right? Be commenting, be engaging, be you know with posting stuff on Board Game Geek if you're making a game for Board Game Geek fans. If you're you know wherever those those people are going to be to give yourself the best chance of, of of getting in front of them and getting them something that they you know somebody that that, that where their audience is very likely to resonate with what you're providing and what you're creating. Yeah. All right, so so this Kickstarter does amazing. You you do over a hundred thousand dollars, and it's now suddenly like this is real. You know, now we're we're making more than we're we're, we're grad school money for sure. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so now what happens? This is it. You 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 finished. This is before you, you had you um, graduated from grad school yet at this point, or still no? Uh, no, not not yet. Um, yeah, so that was like my last year of grad school. Okay. Um, you know, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, you, you got like $100,000 on Kickstarter. Um, you know, I probably saw like $10,000 profit. And, you know, that was based on, you know, two, two and a half years of work. Right. So it's still, it's still not like grad school level money. Right. <laughs> um, right. But, but it gave me the confidence to, um, you know, think that, you know, maybe if I, if I, continue doing this, continue like putting the effort into it. Like it, it could grow into something. Um, and so basically like while I was fulfilling the project is kind of when I, when I graduated, um, I graduated like at the end of 2014. Uh, and yeah. And then in, instead of going into the world of physics and getting a job, you know, uh, I'm sure a, a lucrative job that I could have found uh, in, in the physics world, you know, I decided to, basically just spend a year pursuing this board game thing and seeing what happens at the end of the year. Like if it was, if it was going to be a viable career path or whether I would need to, you know, go into physics. That's fantastic. Actually, that's exactly the same thing I did uh, starting my company. I had saved up enough money to kind of survive for a year. I wasn't 100% sure whether I could do it or not, but I figured a year was a good amount of time to see if that was possible and see what I could do. And then, you know, at least I would know one way or another. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you're prepared for, for, for trying the thing out and can I still always fall back on the thing that, uh, you know, you got a degree for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife, my wife was working... Uh, we didn't have any children, so yeah, we were able to live off her salary. Uh, so yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be in a position to to take that chance. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's one of the things, sort of, as the entrepreneurial lesson. I, I try to reinforce for people because people see entrepreneurs as these huge risk takers, and I you know I see entrepreneurs as as risk mitigators, right? We we you know you want to take calculated risks to really try the things you want to try, um, but don't you know don't set yourself up so that you're you're doomed if it doesn't work. Right. Uh, yeah. And, Okay. And so then that's when, uh, this is where the, the origins of, of Gloomhaven come from. Yeah. Yeah. I pretty much graduated, uh, from grad school and then immediately started working on Gloomhaven. <laughs> um, yeah. I had been working on another design kind of before that, um, that wasn't quite working out. And so, so yeah, it was really kind of like right at that end of, of 2014, I was decided you know, I kind of had the decision to like keep working on this project I was working on or, or start something new. 
Um, and I just, I got really excited about this, you know, this dungeon crawl idea that I had. And, and so I started, started working on that and then just, yeah, just full-time started working on that. And, um, then by October I, I launched the, the Kickstarter for that. So, so you're, so that's a 10 month window then from the beginning of the year you started or you started how long, yeah, how long so. did you get to? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that's yeah, really nine, fast. nine, ten months. Yeah. For something of the scale of Gloomhaven, that's a that's an incredibly fast turnaround time. Just working by yourself. Did you have a, any you know just local playtest group or other people to help you? Oh uh, yeah, I had playtesters. Yeah, I had like a group that that met like every week or every other week to sort of run through the campaign that I was building, sort of as we went. Um, and then, yeah, working with Josh again with, for graphic design and, you know, I had, uh, artists, freelance artists that I was, uh, hiring as well. Gotcha. Also sculptors, cause we were going to do miniatures. Um, yeah. And so like in, in hindsight, like I probably launched the project too early. Like it was kind of, you know, it was a little early, like didn't have quite all the assets and, and stuff that I, that I needed to have to launch that project. But, uh, but yeah, like the truth of the matter was that I kind of had run out of money at that point <laughs> and actually needed the Kickstarter to, uh, continue working on the project. Mm, I know that problem all too well. I, uh, yeah. When you're out of, uh, of cash and you just got to launch or, uh, or you're in trouble. So, uh, okay. So you're, so you're maybe not quite ready, but you don't have much of a choice. Uh, you, uh and now how what have you what do you do differently in preparation for this launch from your lessons from the the first time around i don't know i i'm not i mean i was uh, a little more well known in the community by that point i mean i wasn't um you know necessarily like super famous or anything but but yeah, I had I had contacts, um, so I was able to like get the game in front of more reviewers than I had the first time around. Um, you know, get some some advertisements for it um, set up, and but I don't know. For the most part, I was I just was kind of did the same thing. It was like I'll just launch this project and see how it goes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, again, like I knew, I knew that, that Richard uh, Ham would like it. And so I was kind of, you know, depending on his, his glowing review again to, 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 sure. to keep it successful. <laughs> All right. So the advice for aspiring designers, get Richard Ham to like your game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's super easy. Apparently. I don't know. No, he, he didn't like founders of Gloomhaven though. So it doesn't yeah. work all the time. Sure. <laughs> all right so so um so yeah so gloomhaven I, and again i just i want to i want to dig in a little bit more into the design of gloomhaven because i've you know I've, I've listened to a lot of your other interviews and i've you know i love the the concept at a high level of like you know taking the story and adventure components of dungeons and dragons and that sort of euro gamed like real like crunchy kind of mechanics and decision making and strategy and puzzle solving uh and kind of marrying those two but but I, I still am just blown away by the scale of the thing. Like, did you ever yeah. think, ah, you know, maybe, maybe a dozen or two scenarios would be plenty, or maybe, you know, we don't need all of these different components. Or all <laughs> of these right. Like what, what, 
and again, just because it, it really, from my experience and most designers I talk to, it flies in the face of every piece of common advice that people give and take here, which is, you know, start small, build something that's easier to kind of produce, something that would be maybe less than $100 at retail, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, what, uh, you know, what, what kind of drove you here or what, what those decisions, like how, how did, how did that all come about? Um, yeah, I think again, I'd have to attribute it to, to my hubris, uh, <laughs> sure. in some sense. Um, but it's only, it's only hubris if you fail. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, I, I had this, you know, this grand idea of like what I wanted to see, like my ideal dungeon crawl game and yeah part of that was just about like giving people a like a branching story right so um you know so my main experience with other dungeon crawl games or, or like descent or mice and mystics where you know there's like a nice campaign to it and yeah it's like 12 scenarios or 10 scenarios long or whatever um but also like i, I just didn't like how it was linear you know it's just like you do this scenario then you do that scenario and then you move along until it's over i guess there was like some branching to descent but it all kind of like always that's very like small branching that always ends up like leading to the same like chapter conclusions mm -hmm. um oh yeah and i just like i just i wanted to create like a world that like felt like a world felt like something that you could just like go into and explore and just like pursue kind of whatever plot thread that you thought was interesting. And that was, that was one of the like core concepts of the game was just making something like that. And pretty much all the decisions after that and all like the crazy stuff and the, the ballooning of the content that happened after that was kind of just all based on, that core decision that I, I didn't want to change. Um, and, you know, when I made that decision, I didn't realize like exactly, you know, how, how big it was going to have to be and what all was necessary to, to make that happen. Um, but, but, you know, I was, I was stubborn in that regard that I, I wanted to see that happen. Um, and so that, that's the game that I ended up building. Great. Um, yeah. And so then obviously, you know, Gloomhaven, even more, uh, huge runaway success. Uh, and then, uh, you end up, you end up going back to Kickstarter to reprint it. What was the thinking behind that as opposed to just sort of printing, you know, just reprinting and, and moving afterwards now that you've got the game, why, 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 why go back to Kickstarter again for the same game? That's pretty, pretty uncommon. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a tough decision. Um, you know, it was basically just like this freak situation, you know, where we, we sent like 2000 copies of the first printing, like into retail and, you know, like 40,000 people wanted it, right? Like the, the demand was like 20 times higher than, than what we had. Um, and that, it was a little intimidating. So it's like, okay, so do I, do I print 40,000 copies? Like I don't have enough money to print 40,000 copies. I could probably get the money together, you know, from, from loans or something like based on, um, you know, the, the clout of, of the game essentially. Um, or I could just go to Kickstarter and again, just like fund the printing um, through Kickstarter and, 
yeah, I mean, they're, they're just positives and negatives of both. I mean, I, I won't lie. Like you, you get a much larger profit margin, uh, through Kickstarter than you, than you would through tradition, traditional, sure. um, you know, d- distribution methods. So that was, that was certainly a deciding factor as well. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like, uh, sort of like strike while the iron is hot sort of thing. Like everyone wants a copy right now. So let's allow them to buy a copy right now. Yeah, that, that does make sense when you put it that way. Uh, um, and, and, and you're still, I mean, largely a one man show at this point, like you have your graphic designer and you have your playtest groups and, and otherwise it's still just you as kind of running the company. Is that, is that right? Yeah. At the point of that second Kickstarter. That so, yeah. you know, you're 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 doing pretty well, and you're 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 still wearing all the hats. Uh, that still still amazes me. I mean, I have a very small company still, and I like that, but but trying yeah. to do it all uh, is 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 a, a ton of work. So I'm just continually impressed by that. Yeah, um, it's like yeah. when you talk about it like retrospectively, it's just it's just so weird. And like that person in the past is just like is so stupid. <laughs> where it's like what are we doing <laughs> like yeah how are you how are you able to do all this it doesn't even make any sense or yeah like, and, i mean the process the process of running a kickstarter just takes i mean it takes so much time and attention i mean i'm i'm like as we're having this conversation i'm preparing for our kickstarter we're doing for for ascension tactics yeah. and it's just like taking up just huge amounts of my time just getting the kickstarter stuff ready let alone finishing the game and all the other projects and doing all the things that you have to do to run a company i just uh it's 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 still uh you know what 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 advice do you have for whatever for people like me right how do you how do you keep it all straight <laughs> things moving it's it's a it's very uh it's a very intimidating process as a one-man show i don't know i mean my solution was just to you know like work all the time um <laughs> yeah. which, which wasn't great you know for like my my relationships <laughs> sure. um, you know it certainly took a strain on on my marriage and uh, you know much happier now that i'm i'm working less Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's always a cost to whatever you do. Yeah, well, and that's and that's one of the things that that is really, you know, that is it's just a fundamental lesson, right? You want to succeed at, a, you know, at a high level, you got to work your butt off. You know, you've just it just takes a lot, especially if you want to be the entrepreneur and the designer and, the you know, marketer and, the you know, you want to you want to do all of the things. It's it's a lot of hours and that's exactly the same experience that I've had, you know, and, and I love what I do and I'm passionate about the end product, but, uh, but it, it takes a toll, you know, you gotta be prepared, uh, for that. So I think, uh, it's a, just another important lesson to underscore to people. Cause I think for a lot of people, they just see the success, right? They just see the thing blowing up and they don't see all the work that goes on before that day one starts. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to talk also about, um, board game geek, um, because you, you know, you started your story in many ways with, hey, I, I, I started wanting to play your games. I went to Board Game Geek. I said, OK, well, what's the number one game on Board Game Geek? I'm going to play that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And now you are the number one game <laughs> on Board Game Geek. <laughs> That's pretty cool. What? Yeah. What? How did, how did that, how do you feel like that came about? I mean, obviously you have a great product that resonated and that's amazing, but you know, as you sort of talked about, it's, it's more than just that, right? It's, you know, you have to have the audience that, that fills it. What, what do you think contributed to that meteoric rise and, and, and sustainability? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the hundred dollar question, right? That's <laughs> it's a little more than that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely say like, you know, when it hit that top spot, it was, you know, another one of those, you know, like best moments of your life thing because it had been such an important thing to me, 
like getting started in the hobby and like it seemed like such a you know so so out of reach as you know like it's just you know this reverential thing like the number one thing on board game geek um but um yeah i mean it's it's it still does kind of just boggle the mind to to like try and figure out like how something like gloomhaven like hit hit that spot um because like i i I, I appreciate Gloomhaven as like a really good game, right? I mean, there's a lot of great elements to it um, that make it like you know highly playable and, and very interesting. Um, but um, you know, in some respects, it's 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 a huge undertaking, right? And it's it's very intimidating. Yeah, hundred you know, percent. This giant box, this huge price point, the, all these components that you've got to like punch out and sort. And so, like, I never expected it to like hit like a large enough audience to, you know, to, to see, to see that success on, on board game geek. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very tough. And I, you know, it's where like, I've played it, I played the game once and I've dug into it and researched it a ton. And, but, and my, my team play it all the time, but it's just, it's, it is, it's too intimidating for me. You know, if I games that take more than 60 to 90 minutes at a, you know, in, in total, I just, I, I almost never am able to play anymore, even though I used to play them all the time and love them. It's a, it's hard. And so people just like that are willing to commit so much time and play it, you know, week after week and play through the whole campaign. And, and it's awesome. Uh, and, and I just, but to get over that barrier to even find out that it's awesome. That's the thing that interests me, right? Because right. once you play the game, I get it right. There's, so, there's tons of meat there. There's tons of cool stuff. There's an adventure doing, there's tons to unlock. The game is good, obviously, but that, how do you get people to be willing to like, you know, do, do the heavy lifting. And I mean, literally heavy lifting of like picking up the box <laughs> and taking it to the table, uh, and get that and get that started. What, like, yeah. what do you think is contributing to that? Right. So it's, um, yeah. So like you said, like, it's about getting people to actually like play it and see it. And I think like in some senses, it just like hit like at the perfect time for whatever reason. Right. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, the quality of the game, like certainly had a huge impact. Right. So like it, it hits, it hits Kickstarter backers. They're finally able to, to play it. Um, and I think like Kickstarter itself is, is some contributing factor as well. Right. I mean, um, it's, it's this thing that, you know, you paid for like a year and a half ago and you've been anticipating it coming for a year and a half. And so by the time it hits your, it hits your you know doorstep, you're like primed, you're like ready, like for it to be great. And there's almost like, you know, this positive bias, like towards it being great because you've been anticipating it so much. Yeah, there's a there's a powerful psychological principle there, right? Of if cognitive dissonance. If I, I paid for this thing and I, you know, yeah. I now I got it, like you're you're much more inclined to to like it and want to tell other people how awesome it is because you got it and they don't. <laughs> so you have like that combining with you know just this this great great gameplay that people were already invested in in getting into, right? So I mean, the box is already there; they're, they're going to get into it. They're not going to just like put it on their shelves and forget about it. And so they're you know people are playing the game. And they're just deciding that they really love it. And, you know, it just starts just an overwhelming number of, of tens, you know, 10 ratings on, on board game geek. And just like this, I don't know, this huge, like swell of like buzz around the game that, Oh my God, this is so great. And, you know, that, that's what sort of leads to like, you know, everyone wanting a copy and then the second Kickstarter happening. Um, but just, just with that first fulfillment of, of, you know, the 10,000 copies, 
yeah, there was just like an, an overwhelming, like positive score. Right. I mean, you look on like steam for instance, and you see like, you know, those games that have overwhelmingly positive reviews. Um, you, you know, it's the same, same thing, I think, where it's just like, there was just kind of this buzz of, of positive feedback that just like reinforces itself. Right. It gets more people interested in playing the game more people are like anticipating it being great and, and giving it high scores. And then I think it's just like been this, this snowball effect um, ever since then of, of, of people like actively seeking out playing this game and, and giving it positive reviews. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that organic, you know, spread is, has been amazing. And then, yeah, there's something, you know, a kind of lightning in a bottle element of it, but where that, you know, you've got that initial, you know, reaction. And then the fact that you couldn't restock, the fact that you couldn't keep things in stock. Now you have the 10,000 people that have it become your evangelists and start spreading the word and everybody else just has to be hungry for it. Yeah. And secondary market <laughs> prices go up and they, people now, now not only is it something that's like the, the, the alphas have gotten it and are super reviewing it high, but then everybody else has to sit and wait and like is just wishes they could get it so that when you finally release the, the valve and now they all can, it just blows up even more. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's really exciting. Um, and then, and then I think that, that, that now there's that, there's that transition, right. From the beginning when you had, you know, well, you had almost no connections and in the industry, you made something that was good and you found somebody else's audience that you could leverage to kind of, you know, get it out there. You delivered something that was quality and thus built more of your own audience. Then you launched again with something that was a bigger scale and people followed that the people who loved it really loved it and they became even more of your evangelists and then it scaled from there so this this positive feedback loop of creating good quality products being you know building your audience and then kind of scaling up is now with the most recent Frosthaven release hit the the largest plateau of all time for for board games uh i i i just i i want to hear some of the stories of what was going on in your head and and while that was all that was all happening i can only imagine you've had a lot we've already talked about a lot of greatest moments uh this has got to be another one of them yeah uh for sure <laughs> um yeah i mean at that point you know at, at the point of obvious like the the, the Frosthaven launch you know, my, my world had completely changed because of, because of Gloomhaven, right. Where it's sort of like, now I've had like three years to sort of settle with this fact that, you know, I have the highest rated board game on board game geek and, um, have this like super successful company. Um, and everyone loves this, loves this game that I've made. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm not trying to like brag or anything, but it's just like, it's a lot to like get your head around, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I, I want, I want to, yeah, I want to share in that and understand it. Of course you should be celebrating. This is an amazing accomplishment. And so, yeah, now, now that's, it's at first, it's like, I can't believe it. Now you're like, okay, I, I do believe it. It's real. And then now yeah. let's do the next thing. And, and yeah, yeah. That's, that's, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so, you know, even from like before, uh, Gloomhaven like even hit hit um, the, the the first wave of Kickstarter backers like I had already started working on the next thing you know I'd started already started working on Frosthaven so you know I always knew that I wanted to you know bring something else a- after this um, and it just took a long time to get there because there were a lot of growing pains as like the success of the company kind of caught up with me and I you know um there was just a lot of like business stuff to take care of that i was not prepared for 
So I would like to dig into that stuff a little bit because again, this is the kind of things that a lot of people don't talk about, you know, uh, and what, you know, what's, what, what are the new crises and, and, and are you starting to hire people to help with them? Or like, what is the, you know, the, the dark side of success, if you will, like what's coming that's now, uh, the challenges you're facing that, that maybe you didn't think about or didn't have to face before. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to even like thinking back now, it's all just kind of a blur. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just like the logistics of, of printing all those games and, and just having people kind of like constantly mad at you because they don't have the game yet. And, you know, you need to print more copies. Why aren't you printing more copies right now? Um, and yeah, I just, I didn't have much experience with like the whole logistics side of things. And yeah, I'd, I'd been using the same manufacturer um, and uh, you know, just like dealing with them and, and, um, you know, it ended up just like going a lot slower than I anticipated. And also like, I wanted to make a bunch of changes in between the first and second printings. Um, and then, you know, yeah, once it started being like successful, um, there was a lot of requests for like localizations uh, right. So like now, we, you know, we want to get this game in, in German. We want to get this game in Russian. Um, and so that ended up taking a lot of my time, like trying to coordinate that as well, like finding partners to, you know, to, to localize the game in, in other languages. Um, and, you know, started going to more conventions. Uh, it was also a big part of it. You know, I guess just, um, you know, with that sort of fame and success, like came with me, it was just like a personal expectation to just like, you know, be out in the, in the public more and, and go to more conventions and interact with, with fans um, more. Um, yeah, it was just like a lot of little things that just kind of like eat away at your time. And you don't really realize. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to dig into that part in particular because the, the sort of interacting with fans and the expectations of fans and backers is something that is, I think a lot of people underestimate and, and, and love, I'll just sort of share my kind of reflections on this and, and you can see, you know, it, from the point that people are willing to sort of part with, you know, their money, especially when you're talking about thousands of people and, and, you know, hundreds of dollars and, uh, to, to back your game and get the thing, you feel this incredible burden and obligation towards them, right? They, they've, they've, you know, they've gone out and supported you. You really want to be there for them and be communicative and be present. Uh, but often that, you know, the burden of tens of thousands of people trying to, you know, ask for your time or constantly get updates or seeing things behind the scenes can be really over, you know, overwhelming and challenging. So, yeah. you know, is that, how does that, how, how did you handle that? Are you, you're still like writing all the updates yourself and posting things and, and trying to keep everybody there. What, what was there like a pattern that you had to it or processes, or did you have anybody to help you? Like what was, what was going on and, and, and even is going on, right? You're still in the midst of that process right now. How does that, how do you handle that then? How do you handle it now? Um, yeah, uh, I would I would say right like Kickstarter like one of the main it's almost like one of the positives and one of the main negatives of Kickstarter is just like the the backers and it, I, I don't I don't mean that in like a, a bad way but it's just um, because you're dealing like directly with your customer right and you have like thousands or like tens of thousands of customers. Um, who ex expect that sort of direct communication? Um, yeah, it, it can it can certainly 
just be a, a time consuming aspect of, of the whole thing, you know, especially when you're writing individual messages to people, because, you know, obviously they have the ability to, to send messages to you. And so you, you know, you feel an obligation to write them back and answer their questions directly. Um, and so, yeah, that can be a huge time sink. And I remember, yeah, especially in that second Kickstarter, just spending so much time, just like responding to Kickstarter messages. Um, and, and that's, that's when I brought on uh, my first part-time employee. Um, cause I just, I felt like, um, doing that was going to be, was going to take like most of my time. Um, especially like once we, st- once we launched the pledge manager and started really need to like answering like people's like serious questions about, you know, this and that, um, I just needed some, some more help. Like I was not going to be able to like physically do it given like the number of hours in a day. Um, and so that's, that's when I hired, uh, my first part, part, part-time employee who eventually like a year later became my full-time employee, um, to help with that. So that, that happened like during the second Kickstarter. Right. Yeah, I think that that's one of those key transitions, you know, when you sort of have to realize that taking on other people to handle things is not only, you know, critical for your own sanity, but the best thing for for your fans and, right. and you know, for yourself, because right, the things that you're best at, you're taken away from when you have to do more of, you know, direct replies and, yeah. and, and all these other things. And so uh, it becomes, uh, you know, critical to, to, to doing your job well is to make sure other people can do the other jobs that you're not necessarily uh, the best one to handle or don't have the capacity to handle. Yeah. For, for a long, long time, like, yeah, I was just under the stubborn mentality of just like, I can do everything myself. Like, I don't, I don't need any help. I'm just going to do everything myself. And that, that's kind of like almost my story, right. It's just like the learning very, very slowly over time that like um, you need help and you should ask for help and you should pay for help. And that, that's going to make your life better in the long run. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, this is another one of those cases where, you know, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, right? The fact that you were sort of convinced that you could do everything and willing to take on ambitious projects. If you weren't that kind of person, you probably would never be where you are today. But on the flip side, as you scale and as you get to these new plateaus and, and if you want to continue to sort of do the best thing, then yeah, you absolutely, you need other people to help you along the way. Uh, so it's, it's finding that balance, I think, uh, between those tendencies. Yeah. So uh, of, of other things that I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in is, you know, I mean, the, you've talked about, you know, getting, uh, specifically Rado, but, but in general reviewers to pay attention to the game and, and, and the, if they like it, then there's, there's a huge swing there. There's the organic growth of the community. Um, there's some amount of your directly going out to the community and going to conventions and seeing, you know, interacting with people online and in person, um, that all help to kind of build, in many ways, organically, this base and audience, which we know is critical to success. But um, I think for the the scale that we're talking about, my assumption is you're also going to be doing other kinds of marketing here. Are you, are you doing paid marketing for for these campaigns and uh, either early on or later? And what does that look like? Or is this all organic? Yeah, so all my previous campaigns, um, there wasn't much paid marketing. I think I I paid for one one video on Forge War, uh, and I, I really feel like that ended up being a mistake in the long run. But um, and I think uh, I think during Founders of Gloomhaven, I think uh, at that point I I had, I paid for uh, John Gets Games' playthrough. Uh, I think at that point he was he was charging for Kickstarter playthroughs, um, and so it was yeah it was mostly up to that point organic. 
Um, and then, but then, yeah, I mean, Frost even comes along. And at that point, it's just, I don't know, it's a completely different beast. And also, like, Kickstarter is kind of a different beast at this point than it was, you know, three or four years ago. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, at that point, it was, I mean, we, you know, we, we had the community there, right? We knew it was going to be successful, as I, uh, as I said. And it was just about kind of like, let's see how big we can make this. Like if we just throw a lot of money at this, <laughs> like, like, you know, throw a lot of money on the fire, like let's see how big we can get it. And I, that was sort of the mentality going into Frosthaven. Sure. Well, it clearly, uh, it clearly seemed to work. Uh, so when, when you make that decision, what uh, you, you hire some outside firm, you bring in a marketing director internally, you just start spending money yourself what what just i'm very curious not um for, not for unselfish reasons because so, <laughs> but i'm curious yeah um yeah so at that point um you know it was it was me um uh my one employee price uh and then we we had just hired uh, another employee to sort of help with with community management um so yeah at this point like it's it's the three of us um but yeah it, between us all we still didn't have like a lot of experience like running like a sophisticated like pr campaign um or not pr but you know advertising campaign um you know for a kickstarter you know because as i said like previously it had been just sort of like you know organic grassroots type stuff um and so yeah we decided to to bring on or you know hire, hire somebody um to help run the kickstarter campaign uh with us uh so we used other stuff um, John Ritter, uh, is the, the owner of that company. Um, and they just, I mean, they, they, they do what their name says, essentially, like, you know, whatever you're, you're running on your Kickstarter, whatever you don't want to run, like they'll run it for you. Um, and so we had him sort of get behind like advertising and, uh, and that sort of stuff and ended up working out really well. Um, so he, he was also like very close, uh, with backer kits. Um, you also obviously it has like their own ad, ad department that's that's very sophisticated. Um, so we were kind of working with both of them uh, to run to run ad campaigns, uh, while at the same time, like um, you know, making sure like it, the you know we had like demo kits going out to all the, all the reviewers who who did you know Kickstarter videos just to to tap into their audiences as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's clearly, I, I like, I really love the story because it, it, you know, it scales in this way that is, I think, really powerful. And as you said, some of the lessons had to be learned in very hard ways. And you're like, I can do everything myself. And then, you know, I'll sort of learn what's harder as you go along and then, you know, sort of add on these different elements and support, you know, starting with a graphic designer and then community management and then marketing support and all of that stuff. So it's, it's a great kind of organic growth story, which I know has a lot of uh, struggle and pain behind the scenes that I, I like to kind of bring out even as people see the success and the joy and the awesome parts. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I um, I want to, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the journey and, and I, it's super fascinating and, and uh, you know, kind of some of the business side of it because I think a lot of people that are you know, designers, as I said, usually I advise them to stay, stay the hell away from everything that you did. Uh, so I really wanted to sort of walk through and detail all those parts so people understand what's what's there. But I also want to circle back and, and, and talk a little bit more crunchy design stuff. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I uh, love about uh, Gloomhaven, and I think is a was sort of one of the sort of more interesting and bolder choices is that no dice 
element to it, right? This, yeah. you know, every, you know, for you're saying, I'm going to take the history of you know, role-playing games and then we're going to go on these dungeon crawl adventures. Every single one of those things has dice left, right, and center. And you broke apart from that. Uh, and that's something that we're doing also with our Ascension Tactics uh, Kickstarter as a miniatures game, having no dice. Uh, and so I'm curious, kind of your design philosophy behind that, what motivated it? And then, you know, let's talk about the upsides and downsides of, of, the, of the diceless world. Sure. Yeah. And again, I think that stems from sort of a stubbornness on my part. So I, I went through like a whole phase when I first started designing games where I was like, you know, no dice. Like I hate dice. I'm never going to put a, a single die in my game ever. Um, and yeah, I designed some, it, it was even more than that. Like to start with, um, it was kind of just like a, a no randomness at all sort of approach, uh, which didn't really work out, especially in the, in the dungeon crawl area. Um, like I, I sort of designed this dungeon crawl game before I started working on Gloomhaven and, and sort of parts of it kind of, um, you know, filtered in, into the Gloomhaven design. But yeah, it was like a completely non-random dungeon crawl game where, you know, instead of having some level of uncertainty to like give it, you know, um, a level of excitement, it was just like a lot of math. It was just like you had pluses over here, plus over there, minus over there. And it was just like, it was essentially like a math game and it was uh, not great. Um, so I eventually decided that, you know, you needed some amount of randomness uh, into in a game, but, you know, there were still ways to do it that um, didn't create like these sort of feel bad moments. Um, right. Cause like, I, I remember, you know, playing descent and, you know, you've got like a six sided die and on one of those sides is just a miss, right. It's just like, you did nothing. Um, so like one out of every six times you attack, like you're, you're just going to be completely disappointed. Um, and I just hated that. And, you know, so, yeah. So, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Well, no, I think, I think the, 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 the key here is right. There's, there's a part of us as, as players and as designers that we, we want to remove the, the low, the emotional lows of randomness determining your outcome right yeah, the moment exactly. where you're just like all right i planned everything perfectly i set everything up and oh okay i just rolled all ones like great like hooray i'm having fun right yeah but but you realize on the flip side that that's you know you lose something because the emotional highs of the oh man my back's against the wall and i don't really know what to do and all right i'm gonna go for it and i rolled all sixes and i did it and you know there's this emotional high that comes from that as opposed to the you know the the sort of flat calculations that come from okay well i know i can do seven damage to that because i can add this plus one and this plus two so that'll kill it so that's fine or no it's hopeless because I, i'm for sure going to take 10 next turn and there's yeah. nothing i do yeah it's right. that like and potential I- of like failure or or great success that that makes things more interesting yeah and so and i find that generally what you want to be able to do is find ways to create give the player a variety of risk versus reward choices right where they can choose to take higher risks at the chance for higher rewards and more control over the randomness and that's something that you do so in in, in, you know obviously gloomhaven you have that you have the, the sort of decks that can be manipulated that are getting flipped through as well as the choices you make with the cards that you play um, is something we're doing in Ascension Tactics because you're, the deck that you build is how you control your miniatures. And so you can choose to add more, you know, more movement bonuses or more attack bonuses or more whatever. And you don't know what you're going to draw at any given time, but you're 
you feel more ownership of that of that randomness. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of what, what you kind of built in to help address that problem, uh, which I think has been very yeah. effective. And then and then I think there's something else that goes on, which, you know, is I found it's really important, not just about the the tokens of randomness, right? The feeling of a die versus the feeling of a card deck uh, is is different. Uh, but also yeah. when the randomness happens too, right? Is it front loaded? Is it back loaded? Do I randomize and then make my decisions? Do I randomize after making my decisions? Is it somewhere in the middle? I don't know if you have thoughts on kind of the different ways that that plays out, whether it's in your game or others of, of, of how you think about trying to get that excitement, uh, but, and strategy balance that, that appeals to you and your, and your audience. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, front loaded randomness, right. Where it's, yeah, sort of at the beginning of a round and you can react to it or um, is is generally the type that I prefer, if, if, if any. Um, right, and you can see that in Gloomhaven, you know, where you, you're you picking your cards and then you see what the monster's doing and then you act out the round so you can change your, your plans if you wanted to um, to sort of react to what the monsters are doing. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there is also the, yeah, the attack modifier cards that will provide some randomness to your actual attack. So that is sort of like a kind of a role to resolve mechanism, but I, yeah, tried to also give players control over that and also just, yeah, make it more uh, customizable. I guess it's the same thing as giving people control, but um, also just increasing, no, sorry, like decreasing the variance, I guess. Right. So that, it's not there. There is like the one miss card out of twenty and the one crit card out of twenty, but even when you miss, like you're still able to apply any additional effects. It's it's generally not like a complete waste of your turn. Um, and then also like in in between that, it's you know there's just like some pluses and, and minuses, and it's not there's not like a huge amount of of variance. Like if you're doing seven damage with an attack, like it's like okay, I'll do like five to nine. Um, it's not, it's not like, well, I might do two, I might do 20 sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, so, so, you know, again, you built this sort of stage thing where it's like, all right, some decision-making, then some randomness, then some decision-making, then a little bit of randomness, which you have some, you know, some control over and, and that sort of evens out more over time. Yeah. And that kind of creates this sort of flow of like, you know, where the excitement and drama is and where the strategy and puzzle solving is and how you can kind of find that balance. I think it's just a sort of interesting place that you landed to help get some of the best of both worlds. Yeah. And I think like one of the other advantages of randomness is that you, is you can't math it out. Um, right. So like, you're not going to like sit there for 10 minutes with AP, like trying to figure out like whether you can do this or not. You know, it's just like, at some point you're just like, well, let, let's see if I can do it. You know, that randomness kind of gives you that impetus to, um, just, yeah, just go for it as you were saying earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Giving you relieving the cognitive load in some, yeah. in some ways, like it just becomes, it's just, you know, in, in theory you could calculate probabilities and do the math all the way, but, but for at certain, at a certain point, people just stop, right? If it's like, if I know I, if the, if it's all on the board, then I got to plan out the whole chess moves. Uh, but if it's just, I know there's going to be some randomness there then it's like, okay, I'll take a shot or I won't. And, uh, that, that is, it relieves this, this cognitive burden and lets you just kind of have fun and, and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's really huge. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're playing like a Euro game, right. The, where you're managing a business or something like that makes more sense that you would want to like sit there and like 
plan out everything to to a perfect detail. But you know, in a dungeon crawl game where you're trying to simulate the atmosphere of a bunch of you know mercenaries, you know, running through this dungeon and, and killing things like as quickly as possible before they die themselves, like it, yeah, some element of randomness feels feels more appropriate. So make it more, give it like a more urgent feeling. Yeah, I think that's another really uh, important point to kind of dig into, which is you know where Gloomhaven lives in this in this this merger of like you know the Euro game versus fantasy dungeon crawl, you know Ameritrash kind of uh, uh, terminology, uh, where it's it's you know you want to sort of have this this Euro game very like sort of you know plan out strategic uh, feel, but the aesthetic of the game in some ways drives you to have to have some randomness. It has to have some amount of like combat and monster killing just can't be pure, uh, you know, pure yeah. math out and, and watch the production line move. Uh, I, I find that pretty interesting. Yeah. I still get people detracting and saying that, it, that it's not a dungeon crawler and that it's, it's too, it's too, uh, mathy and strategic, but, uh, yeah, well, it's it's uh, that, that it's sort of one of the things that I, I I love about it is like you know when people try to make these games that appeal to everybody, you know they you you know that's a sort of failure from the beginning. And and your your game, you know, you would think would be the most niche of games that it's given its price point and time to play and everything else. But the fact that you you know sort of delivered so well and the thing that you were doing let it grow and end up having an audience that's you know sounds like even far greater than than, than you could have expected and, and yeah. like almost anybody could have um and so that's where i think for people just you know being true to your own you know authentic kind of design instincts and and desires and and the, the sort of vision and just really taking the time to execute at a high level you know you'll find you, you'll you'll be able to deliver if you can get it in front of the right people which was the other obviously piece of the puzzle that we've already talked about uh then then you know you can you can have a really successful business especially as you know as a one person kind of operation or a small team that gives you a lot more freedom uh in many ways it's you know the challenges we've already talked about but it's also this freedom of like you know you don't need to sell you know, a hundred thousand copies to survive, you can make a lot less and still be okay. Especially when you're going to Kickstarter and you can keep more of the profits, right? You can keep, yeah. you know, you have that retail margin to work with. And so I know a lot of people that are, uh, you know, they, they, they don't even sell into retail, um, because they want to just be able to sort of work directly with their fans and be able to get them a better price point and be able to have, um, you know, have a, a smaller scale business where they can do the kinds of things that they, want to do without necessarily being beholden um you know tim fowers i had on my podcast and yeah. he's a he's a really great example of that where he he you know goes against the grain in a lot of ways but really is able to build a great niche for himself and you know delivers things his audience loves and has the freedom to design what he wants to design and i, I think it's a really great place to be yeah i agree because i you know because again I, I i sort of i still feel like i need to caution the audience because i think your story is incredibly hard to replicate yes. and many of it is these <laughs> lightning in a bottle moments yeah. um but but the steps that you took are replicatable and they absolutely can lead to a level of success that that i think people can be happy with even if they don't necessarily aren't going to expect you know millions of dollars from their 
their next Kickstarter right away. I think that yeah. there is a there's a lot of value here uh, for for anybody that wants to you know follow this path and 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 do the hard work <laughs> the the years of hard work of, <laughs> of trying to start a company and design games and build these epic things and all that. So you know again I I, I want to just sort of say kudos to you and I, I love I loved having a chance to hear the story and and I hope other people are able to take uh you know take the good out of it even if uh, some of it is 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 really unbelievable on a lot of levels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, where I tell people all the time, right, is, yeah, I'm, I made a great game, but at the same time, like, at so many steps along the way, I just got, like, incredibly lucky. Yeah. And that's kind of what it take, takes to succeed in any field, really, or any cr- creative field, especially, right, is you have to, you have to do the work and you have to have a great product, but, like, you also have to get lucky a lot of the time. Like, you have yeah. to make sure both things, or you can't make sure you get lucky, but, like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, you, you can set yourself up for luck to, to work. You know, chance favors the prepare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have yeah. to put yourself in a position to where if you do get lucky, then you can be successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and it's those it's those those fundamentals, right? The the being where we started the story of like, hey, you know, I've got a vision and I'm willing to go through the hard work of, you know, f- finding a playtest group or building a playtest group, iterating kind of keep keep moving it forward and then when it, whatever path you want to take to kind of bring it to life being willing to take it step by step it's okay not to know what you're doing you know most of us don't and in fact in many ways it's better not to because it's <laughs> it just, you don't realize how hard it is uh and you know just kind of growing it that way and and finding if you don't have either or doing the work to build your own audience whether whatever however you can do that by adding value to the world or connecting with somebody that has an audience to help spread the word, right? Build a great product and have an audience that you can reach and serve are the two critical things. Work hard until you have those things in place. And then, you know, then yeah, you're rolling the dice, even though we don't like rolling dice. Uh, you're rolling the dice. <laughs> um, I really do appreciate your time. Um, do you have any other, uh, you know, messages out there for people or uh, let them know maybe where they can find you and your stuff? Uh, kind of some last parting words. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, cephalofair.com is the website. I'm also active on on Twitter at cephalofair and uh, Facebook, same thing. Um, you still can uh, pre-order Frosthaven, um, you know, through the, through the Kickstarter. Or, you know, go to the Kickstarter page and you'll find the, the pre-order link. And then also we have the, the mass market version um, of, of Gloomhaven coming out here in, a, in about a week in Target. So... Uh, the Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. You can you can check that out as well. Yep. So by the time this is live, that'll already be available. So All right, great. That's awesome. And I really do appreciate your time. This has been amazing. Thank you for sharing the story. I, I look forward to following more cool stuff and uh, and getting Frosthaven to the table when we get a chance. All right. Thanks. Yeah. And, and good luck with uh, Ascension, the Ascension Tactics. Yep, Ascension yeah. Tactics, which will also be live by the time this uh, podcast airs. So Ooh, all right. go check that out on Kickstarter. <laughs> While you're ordering Frosthaven, go over and check out Ascension Tactics for me. It's like <laughs> you're, you're leveraging my audience. <laughs> oh, see, this is it. I'm a genius. I love it. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. 
If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.